Today I get to speak to a friend of mine that I've wanted to get on the show for quite some time. I'm talking about Mr. D.H. Thorne, author of Becoming the Maelstrom, The Infernal Vampire Handbook, as well as The Shadow Nomicon. D.H. is a controversial character, but today him and I sit down and we discuss some very interesting subjects, including Lucifer, the Goetia, as well as the true nature of spirits and some of the important tool sets required for us to be successful in our magic, as well as how to overcome some of those old dogmatic religious beliefs or background programming that's still in the back of our head. Sit back and enjoy today's show and remember to live deliciously. Yeah, I mean, to me, it's a shame to, you know, I don't think any belief system, so long as it's not practicing things which uh, cause a lot of chaos to individuals, you know, if they're not bigoted and weird stuff like that. I don't believe in repressing any faith, belief, spirituality, even Christianity. Like, I don't have, I'm not enemies of Christians. I honestly don't care what they do, so long as they don't come with torches and pitchforks to my house, you know. <laughs> mm. I, I, don't, I don't believe it's liberated to, to make enemies out of spiritual paths. I just don't. So, um, yeah, but no, I find that frustrating, too, to have to deal with. Uh, it, here where I am, I would say, you know, it's like uh, having any kind of formal, formal or informal community outside of the internet is pretty much impossible. Um, it's it, people have retreated so far into the virtual space that um, there's no, there's really no sense of community outside of that anymore. There's no, I don't know where it happens. Maybe young people because they're more inclined to meet one another, <clears throat> but there's no sense of people coming together or forming any kind of groups or anything uh, outside of the internet. So it's. It's a little lonely too. At the same time, there's, there's a lack of that communion going on. And I'm not a religious person, so to me, it's not a matter of religion. This is, these are things I'm interested in that I study and that I practice solitarily. And um, but being open about this stuff, you know, I guess on the internet it can make you like a rock star because, you know, if you have a little bit of artistic license with it, if you're a little bit, you know, creative about it. If you're not just sitting there with some cruddy candles, people will go, wow, that's amazing. And it's like, everybody's doing amazing stuff. It's just, mm -hmm. you know, they, they, so it's easy to stand out. Uh, but at the same time, you know, I don't have a church. I don't have a congregation. I don't do it that way. I'm not here to teach people to worship anything. I want them to seek enlightenment for themselves. That's really what I hope for. But uh, yeah. It's, it's an interesting point that you kind of, um, you know, raise there. The, I think that, well, I mean, the loneliness is kind of amplified with the pandemic or the disconnect, mm -hmm. so to speak. And there was a debate recently here, here by us about, the, you know, where do we celebrate really the equinoxes and the solstices, you know, for those that are, you know, fans of the eight spoke wheel kind of philosophy. And I had a conversation with Bill Duvendak 
because uh, I do the monthly astrology piece with him and we kind of tackled that. And there was something that was very interesting that came out of it because, you know, one of the questions somebody raised was, you know, does it really, you know, should they actually just practice the North, Northern based traditions because of, you know, when the sun comes in areas, I forget the exact thing, but it basically boiled down to the astrological, astrological position. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and it, the, 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 the argument that were the kind of thought that, that came up in the conversation was, that's sometimes the problem, you know, we kind of get so caught up in trying to get these perfectly intellectual systems. And on the one hand, they're important because they give us this psychic structure in which to play it. I mean, even the tree of life can be considered to be one of those. But sometimes it makes us forget that one of the reasons for the solstices is to get in touch with that part of the world. It's seasonal stuff, it's, or the equinox specifically, um, it's communities and get involved again with that degree of the earth, the energy and the physical part of it, um, which I think there's a transmutation happening very much in our world today, especially with technology. You know, I think there's definitely the rise of the technomancer, as I would call it, um, where we're kind of trying to find that earth and virtual space, but that sense of redefining community now becomes a little bit difficult. Um, South Africa has a bit of an obsession with community, um, which is why lockdown is so difficult for South Africans, especially. I'm assuming it's probably the same everywhere, but- We hate it. I mean, anybody, to, I, I hate to make too hard a judgment on people, but anybody with sense hates it. I mean, everybody knows that there's an element of tyrannical authoritarianism behind it. They, they don't, I don't trust it. It's not, I'm not saying that if it was a severe situation, I wouldn't do something. I'm, I mean, I don't, I'm not a big outdoorsy. I mean, I am, I like going outside, but I'm not a big, uh, I don't, I don't, um, how do I put this? I'm not big on like just sitting in town and talking to people. No, mm. but I know, you know, because I, between divination and studying the world and everything else, I know what they're doing. This is all, it's like getting people primed and ready and able to handle being told what to do all the time with their free time. They're, they're getting people ready to stay locked down forever if they want them to be you know they're, they're getting people acclimated to that kind of invasion of, of authority now at the same time they'll probably once this is done they'll probably let it go maybe they will maybe we'll get lucky maybe i'm wrong but you know just like after 9 11 we never got back a lot of the freedoms that we had you know we we can't travel without getting half naked and getting x-rayed and all this other it, it never it went back it never went back to normal it, the new normal was more oppression and and that's always what happens government never gives back the powers mm -hmm. it takes in an emergency never so it's going to be a struggle and we hate it at least most people do in fact even the people who think it's a good idea hate it nobody likes it so it's hurting everybody and it's destroying our economy and it's just you know people are people are uh, addicted to fear in this country and I'm not saying it's not a real situation. Of course it is, but it's not, it, is it worth sacrificing our entire country over? I, I don't think so. I don't think we need to do this this far. I just don't. I mean, I did it. I did a channeling with Marbas back in when this started and he warned me of that. That was his big thing. Was, don't let them crush you with this. Don't let them remove your freedoms over it. So that's, that's, that's interesting. I actually, there's a few things I want to ask you about that. There's, there's something that you raised right there in that part now where you said, um, firstly, it's a fact that it's difficult when even with, whether there is this idea of an agenda or there's no agenda, whichever side of the fence one sits, the fact is it's very difficult to give up power once you've had that power, you know, so especially mm -hmm. for a government or any kind of group of people. Um, that's the one thing. That's a, it's just one idea that I want to pin there and then I want to attach another pin to it. Um, 
and this is, you know, we're talking about this where people are kind of getting used to this new normal and this living inside of the, their own cyberspace, really. Um, and I was listening to a, an interview with a scientist recently. It was on impact theory. And one of the concepts that he spoke about is this idea that one of the biggest problems that we have in science is that we're trying to solve the problem within the virtual headset, the, the headset of time and space, whereas we're discovering more in cognitive sciences and we're discovering more in you know the science or the, or the, or the research and consciousness that there's this entire plethora of consciousness beneath it that we, we can't map it correctly from this point of knowing. It's the way an artificial intelligence will be able to see things better unless we're trying to limit it inside of our model of the world. That's why we can't really generate or understand our concept of artificial intelligence is limited because we're projecting ourselves onto it. So my, my, my question, my reason kind of for bringing those two ideas together is because there's an inherent pattern there. There's this need to power, the will to power, the old you know, adage, um, the old Nishian uh, kind of philosophy. And then there is the same time this, this, this lock zone that we put ourselves in the limitations. And this is, to me, this is the problem that the black magician or the left-hand path magician is the one that's most primed to solve because the left-hand path magician doesn't run from the fear, doesn't run from the pain and lock themselves in trying to escape and find a quick happy place. They actively try to work that alchemy and bring themselves deeper as a way to break through that ego barrier. And you know, we you spoke about Marbas and we speak about the goethic entities and I think there's a there's a, a certain distinct differences between the magician that can make the contact versus the person that just speaks to pretty much psychological archetypes versus actually mm -hmm. making real contact. Uh, what do you think about that? What's your thought process in terms of that? So as a non-dualist, uh, my esoteric, I shouldn't even say esoteric, my metaphysical philosophy is based on non-dualistic principles, mostly leaning towards the Vedas, a little bit towards Neoplatonism and, and, and Plato. Um, so I would argue that everything you're experiencing, who's experiencing that? Where, where is that taking place? Uh, you know, Rene Descartes says, you know, I think therefore I am. And I would ask Rene, where are those thoughts taking place? Who is having those thoughts? Who, who is experiencing those thoughts? You know, when you say, I think therefore I am, who, who's the one who hears that statement? Who's the one who thinks that statement? What is it? Where is it that that's taking place? Can you find that person? Can you find that identity? When we argue that, you know, I'm not theistic. When I talk about the spirits, I'm not saying they're not real. What I'm saying is I'm not theistic about it. I don't see Marbas as a being that was thrown out of heaven. It's a fallen angel and all of that. I believe in the archetypes, but I believe the archetypes are spiritual truths. That is to say, um, just like I asked you, where do these thoughts take place? Where does your identity exist? Where are you? Who are you? Are you Adam Knox? Well, no, that's a name. Who's Adam Knox? Well, he's got a story. He's got a story, right? He's got a, a birth. He was born. Uh, how do you know? Were you there? Do you remember it? Do you remember every bit of it? No, you were told most of that. Um, and so you're a, you're a cooperative story that's being told between you and the beings around you. So the thing that you think of as you isn't real. And in the same way, none of the gods, demons, or spirits are real. They're no more real than you are, but they're also no less real than you are. You, you put value on this story of you because you can go out and verify. You can say, well, if I go to this person, they're going to say, oh, hi, Adam. 
If I go to somebody else, they're going to say hi, DH. They're going to, so that we get validated all the time in that experience. But what is it that truly is at the center of that picture, of that story? And when someone tells me, oh, well, I believe that it's a God, I believe in a ghost or an energetic field of being and blah, 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 blah. I say, that's great. That's, that's your experience of it, but that's not what it is. You're still, you're still talking about the, the phenomenological, the experiential, because everything, you, you, nothing is objective really to us as individuals. All of us experience reality in a subjective way. Mm. So you and I, what, what makes something objective is when we agree upon it. So if you and I both say the sky is blue, fair enough. We can agree it's blue. What color is blue? What does it look like? Mm. Each one of us will have a completely separate experience of that color blue. Mm. But we both know the archetype of a blue sky. We both know what a blue sky is supposed to be. Okay. Now, when we're talking about Marbos, okay, Marbos in particular, especially the, 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 the Christianized demons, you know, the demonized, you know, spirits that we're talking about. In every single case that I've been able to research far enough and get to the truth of, in pretty much every single case, and I'm not saying every one of them I've found this, but in every one I've been able to find anything, I can trace them back to a pagan or heathen, some other folk spirit or god that was worshipped by them. And in every single case, they are representative of some sort of a, and I call them a spiritual archetype, because I don't believe that they're dead. See, the problem people have with when you say like God or whatever, or an archetype, I don't think there's an either or. I think they're the same thing, but I think that they're alive in the same way that you're alive. You're an archetype. You, you represent a whole bunch of archetypes. That they're, they're all part of a, of a mixture and they come together and you're like a compound story based upon archetypes. And that archetype changes as your life you know, journey happens. You begin as a stupid little child and you, you stumble and fall and you make mistakes. You get older, you make different mistakes. You become an adult and you make different mistakes still. And you run the gamut from different archetypes through that entire process. And I apologize if my bird's messing with your recording, but he no, likes to no. talk when I start talking. Um, so when we're talking about a God versus an archetype, there's no verses. I don't, I don't like to put verses in there. I'm still atheistic, however. That is to say, I don't believe in, in fact, I've never found evidence for any of the really supernatural woo. I believe that magic works via a process of natural law. It, the thing is, as a non-dualist, as someone who is rooted in kind of a Vedanta, Zen, all that kind of stuff, someone with their roots in that, who loves Alan Watts, who understands what the premises are and has had an experience of, when I say ego disillusion, it doesn't mean I got rid of my arrogance. I mean, the, the idea that I know that I am not D.H. Thorne. I know that D.H. Thorne is an experience and that that experience is happening in emptiness. That emptiness is what I am. So as someone who understands that, I recognize that everything we're talking about is illusory. It's, it's not real. It, not even the table that is in front of me. It's not real. That doesn't mean it's not here. Okay. That doesn't mean that there isn't a valid experience of it. It doesn't mean that, it, that I won't die if I shoot myself in the head. It just means that the thing that dies is not real. It's, it doesn't exist in the true sense. It's Ill, in, illusory. So everything we're talking about, when we're talking about a God, okay, 
a god is something which has been it, it, a good a better word for any spirit would be like a tulpa or an egregore or a thought form that has literally taken on a life of its own now it doesn't mean that it's not conscious or sentient or aware it simply means that i don't distinguish between a god and an archetype i believe a, an archetype imagine uh, imagine if you will um every single god that you've heard of if you really examine them closely they represent something that is found uh, fundamental to human experience uh, one of my favorite things to look at is the the proto-indo-european cultures this would go from the baltic area the kurgans those kinds of people from the steppes of of you know that area you know all the way to maybe some people think northern turkey um might even include Gobekli Tepe, perhaps that whole area. And it becomes the religious uh, pantheon that stretches from ancient Mesopotamia all the way even into the Norse uh, pantheon. Okay. Mm -hmm. This is why you have certain characters and archetypes reappearing over and over again. For example, you have Marduk, Bel, Baal, Hadad, specifically Baal Hadad, um, uh, uh, Indra, uh, Thor, Zeus, and Jupiter. They're all basically the same spirit. They're all the same archetypal God. If you look at their story, if you look at their mythology, if you look at their symbolism, they're all wielding lightning. They're all fertility. They're all attached to war in some way. They're all jovial. Okay. Yes. And they're all and they're all attached to the same celestial sphere. Of course, the Norse didn't practice much with the celestial spheres like we do, but it would be attached to the same thing. It's the same day of the week, even. Okay. So we know that the same archetype is behind each one of those those masks and so you have people like uh michael ford who i've never read much of his work but people tell me that a lot like what i'm saying is a lot like what he says with this idea of um deific masks that there is deific something and it wears a mask and each culture paints that mask a different way it makes that mask fit their culture hmm. every culture has got a fertility god Every, every culture has got a God of lightning and a God of this and a God of that. Everyone's got, th these archetypes are real. Now, what makes them, them sentient, conscious, and aware is, is a complicated thing, okay? You yourself wear a mask. You yourself are known by many different names. You are known to different people in different ways. Different cultures would treat you differently. And they're all right in a way, okay? And each one of us has our own identity within that paradigm as well. So you see yourself a certain way. I already see you a certain way. Other people see you a certain way. Which one of those is the real you? Okay. Which one is more real? The one we all agree upon, the one that you, that you know is true, the one that I know is true. Which one is more real? So when we're asking the question, is a God real? We have to ask the same question. What about them is the core truth of what they are? The only thing that is, we're going to say, you know, universal to everyone who experiences them are the archetypes that, that are the seed that make them. Mm -hmm. So when people say, oh, I know they're, they're, not, they're not an archetype, for example, like some people just worship archetypes in there. When I say I'm an atheist, I don't mean that I'm non-spiritual. I don't mean that there is nothing um, beyond the material. I'm not a materialist, okay? When I say I'm an atheist, I mean 
I don't believe that a God created the universe and I don't believe that gods bring rains and I don't believe that any of that superstitious stuff happens that way. What I do know, however, is that each one of us is a God. Each one of us is. So in other words, if they are not gods, neither are we. But if there's no such thing as gods at all, if there's zero gods, then there's nothing above us. That means we are gods. We are all essentially uh, avatars for that same divinity. And that divinity is the non-dual source. And that source is aware. It is conscious. And it's in all of us. So there's a lot, there's a lot to unpack with non-dualism. So I'm not going to try to do that on this conversation today. No, but, but it, it, sets, it sets a really, very kind of nice frame. Um, you know, because again, like people are trying to solve the problem inside of the mask, inside of the virtual yes, reality mask yes. that they're wearing themselves. And um, one of the ideas, I think, with, with new research in times of consciousness is we always had this paradigm that, you know, you're a consciousness, but we're starting to understand that even the bacteria in your, in your stomach, in the microbiome, these are all layers of consciousness or multi-layers of consciousness. And in fact, this experience of a you is actually a collective of little different fields of consciousnesses. And we, we don't know the range or the extent of that because the roots of consciousness seems to be outside of time and space. And I think that's the beauty about when we look at these pantheons and we look at the traditions, there's a reason I think that um, there is a correspondence that shows up, you know, the 72 Goetia, the 72 Shem, the 24 Uthrak runes multiplied by three also coming back to that same number, coming back to these same patterns, the zodiac, the, the, the planets all inside of us as maybe potentially different tiers in the ascension of recognizing the godhood that is fundamentally shared between each and every one of us because we're still kind of tiers of consciousness inside of that same thing and i love how israel regardi once pointed out or defined the astral plane as the imagination of nature allowing imagination to be a a tool a facility by which we get to engage in tiers of with other tiers of consciousness at a, at a more intense level but the hallucination I think that a lot of people kind of fail to understand here is they simply draw it that the, the assumption that imagination is restricted to my own head only and not realizing the intensity of what you make real by that emotional and psychosomatic investment. Um, kind of the same way as somebody taking psilocybin mushrooms for the first time. Uh, that massive neural collapse is so intense with the amount of information that it gives a definite experience of an other, whether there's an actual other or whether it's the brain trying to process that much data and simply needing to elevate the symbolisms of its language to uh, an entity in order to deal with that communication. Do you find that there's a relationship there um, or what's your views on that? Because especially since we're, we, we have the Goetia, because this is a loaded question, because I want to kind of go into your views further than about these tiers of consciousness, specifically Lucifer and your experience in terms of building that relationship. Yeah. So the first thing I would say is the Western modern mm, scientific definition of consciousness is a compound idea. They don't know what the hell they're talking about. That's number one. Um, it's really simple. It's really not complicated, but they overcomplicate it by inserting a whole bunch of stuff that is not actually consciousness itself. Um, consciousness is an infinite state of knowing. The idea of a knower and a known are things that the infinite state of knowing experiences. So in other words, this idea of 
uh, I am a person or I have consciousness. The, these are ideas. These are, these are experiences you're having. None of them are the real article. Mm -hmm. You have to, this is why I like the, the Eastern non-dual traditions because they practice what's called via negativa and you use neti neti and you just keep destructing everything that you think is real until you get to what you can truly know. The only thing you can truly know is that you are a state of knowing. That's the only thing that you can really get to. It sounds like solipsism, but it's not because if you, if you explore this philosophy deeply enough, you recognize that non-dualism is saying that there is only one truth, one thing, one source, one origin, one prime cause, whatever you want to call it, which is consciousness. But that consciousness must limit itself into these smaller paradigms of awareness. These, these, so the omniscient, uh, all-knowing consciousness must reduce itself down into a finite identity. That would be me, you, the dog, the table, the, bio, the bacteria in your gut, the atoms, the molecules. It must shrink itself down, its awareness down, sort of like I can see this whole room right now, but I'm only focused on that little dot, like about that big in my awareness. If I didn't do that, everything would be a blur. Mm. So the, the infinite consciousness that you are must create a perspective for itself that happens infinitely okay there is no limit to it but part of that limitation is the forgetting of the universal nature of it so mm -hmm. in other words i because i've had similar to what someone who's had a psychedelic experience might have that dissolution of ego i had a moment here i didn't use a chemical for it it was it was kind of miraculous to me it was while i was meditating while working at my job um, when I was working there, um, I had a moment of, when I say ego dissolution, it doesn't mean that like I suddenly wasn't arrogant. People get the mistake. They mistake. They, they use a different word for it than I do. Ego disillusionment means I realized I was not just this person. I realized that this was a character. This was something I was experiencing, but I was actually much more than that. I am actually, I became aware of more than me. And that me stopped being me. I became, I am the planet earth. I am the stars. I am everyone that I know. The problem is I can't contain that in the experience of D.H. Thorne. So when I returned to that individual awareness, all of that had to get kicked back out. I, re I returned to that. So when we're talking about layers of consciousness, we, just like you said, we're trying to Within the, within the virtual reality program, we're trying to see what the real world looks like. It's never going to happen that way. You can't do it. Mm. Um, how, can, how can your character in a video game prove that he's in a video game when every law that he knows is a, is a law within the video game? It's not easy to do. Unless the programmers leave some kind of a trick or a hint, it's not going to be doable. Now, we do. Uh, the, 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 the nature of, of consciousness, it's playing a game. It wants you to be asleep because it's fun. It's, it's enjoyable to have this dream of mundane reality because the limitation is what makes it fun. Mm. However, within the system, there are miracles. There are moments of synchronicity really is what it is. You know, I'm more of a fan. I, I believe that uh, uh, thaumaturgy, the, the working of miracles is actually a synchronistic thing that happens when, when you have the experience of a magical manifestation, are you causing the manifestation or are you experiencing it as a synchronistic event? In other words, if I were to charge that candle with my intention and release it into the world, 
did I cause the world to change or was that already going to be my future? And all I did was participate in it knowingly. Okay. So that, so, so how can you tell the difference? If you can't tell the difference, you're probably doing it right. Hmm. Now, the, the secret here is your consciousness has an infinite number of multiverses and possibilities that it can experience. And it's chosen to experience this one. You feel powerless, but in truth, the entire possibility of all cosmoses is always there for you. It's just that your ego doesn't get to choose, choose what happens. Your ego is a character. Your ego, you know, go read a book. Can the character on page five choose to do something different on page six? No, they're set in that story that is being told. However, you're also the, also the author of that story. You're the one deciding and it's not you. Adam Knox has no choice. Your higher true self is what's causing this. Now, this gets in the whole, we're not talking about, you wanna know about Lucifer. Now, Lucifer, a study, a cursory study of the Bible shows that Lucifer is not a real being. That is to say, Lucifer, um, when I say I got to be careful because that can upset some of my fans. When I say <laughs> Lucifer is not a real being, I don't mean you can't commune with a being called Lucifer and have a relationship with it and find a lot of stuff. What I'm saying is, is that the Lucifer most Westerners understand um, was born out of a kind of a mistranslation in the third century AD of the Bible. It was a misunderstanding of a part of the Bible talking about a king that uh, was, oh, star of the fall, you know, oh, fallen star of the morning, blah, 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 blah. It was, it was a parable, basically, about, about a king that, that had fallen. Uh, there's a little more to it than that. I don't have to get into all that, but it was a mistranslation of when they said Lucifer, light bringer, they thought that they meant, that they didn't mean a title. They thought they meant a specific entity. This was later corrected, okay? But before it was corrected in most Christian doctrine, the, the, the mythology of Lucifer had taken root and Lucifer became, you know, Lucifer and Satan were both, were both together. This is why you have this big confusion. People say, is Satan and Lucifer the same thing? People are, are too dogmatic still. They're still superstitious about what these things are. They really believe that there was Yahweh and Satan and some kind of war and everything happened and fell down and there's, you know, a heaven and a hell. And none of that's true. That, Everything in, in the Christian text, the, the Abrahamic text, is a retelling of much older stories from that proto-Indo-European culture. Yes. It's a retelling and refoundation of it to turn it into a pantheistic story with one God in which everything dwells. They were Canaanites. They lived in Canaan. They had the same original faith as the Canaanites. They, there are Jews that had statues to Baal Hadad and there were, there were Canaanites that statues to Yahweh, and, and they, they had an intermingling of their faith. It was the same story. This is why they both have a flood myth. This is why they have the same stories. They just change who the good guy is. The, the Abrahamists made Balhadad a bad guy. And of course, in the Bible, Balhadad loses every contest. Well, in their tradition, the, the Hebrews were not that big a deal, you know, comparatively, of course, short of whatever happened historically, I mean. It wasn't like they went, oh, Yahweh is a bigger God than ours. It never happened like that. So this idea that there was a heaven and a hell and a, and a, and a casting out of Satan and Satan becomes Lucifer and the pit of hell and he makes pandemonium, all of that is based on mythology, which was solidified when, um, when it was written into Paradise Lost and some other related works. So the Lucifer we're talking about, the Lucifer that's, that's over here that I use as, a, as an archetype, as a character, as a, as, a, as a mask, 
is an ancient archetype, however. It predates all of this by a long way. There's always been a cosmic rebel archetype. Mm. Um, we can actually say that, you know, if we go back to ancient Sumer, you have Enki and Ea, which is basically the same spirit, just a little different in, because it's as you, as you go forward in time from Sumer to Akkadia, there's some changes that happen, but they're basically the same being, okay? And they both represent a being that actually plays a, a major role in the uh, uplifting of humanity from a bestial man to an enlightened human being, because in the creation myth of ancient Sumeria, uh, the blood of, um, I can't remember his name, Kingu uh, was taken. Kingu was one of the children, I believe, of Tiamat. The blood of Kingu was used to uplift the bestial form of humanity into the, the, the intelligent version that we are. So there was an interbreeding, that Anunnaki stuff. And Enki was the one who did that. Enki was, was also the serpent in, you know, in, in the Garden of Eden, Lucifer, okay, who gave humanity the wisdom of good and evil. It's the same story, just a little tweaked for the different cultures so that they can demonize things and, and assert their own dominance, right? So Lucifer is this is just the, the mask I enjoy. I enjoy the fallen angel archetype. I enjoy the, the, the king of the underworld that, that sits upon a throne of the damned and is outcast because I have found in my life that seeking liberation always makes you an outcast from whatever society you're in. That doesn't mean you can't go back and you can't you know buy your groceries at the supermarket. It just means that people who are liberated are very rarely tolerated in, in civil societies. Um, at least the ones that we know of in the West. The Western world is really uptight. It's really, it's really pro, actually they all are, but I mean, the Western world in particular is really uptight about conforming to certain standards of society. You don't dress the right way. You don't talk the right way. You don't fornicate the right way. You don't do this, that, that, that. Everybody's got a bone to pick with you. So if you seek any kind of individualization, um, you're going to be an outcast. And of course, that can create a club of outcasts, you know, the, the island of misfit toys. And I kind of see myself as one of the kings of the island of misfit toys, because I'm not afraid to, to own that and say, this is what I am. Lucifer represents that, that ideology of self-liberation in, in, you know, the cosmic rebel who says, you can become your own deity uh, because you are. You know, there, there, is no, there is no doubt in my mind in, in, in that, that each one of us is the source, having a human experience. And part of that is you can have a limited, a limited experience and there's nothing wrong with that. There's, there's no judgment. If, you, if you're a slave, you're a slave. If you're a king, you're a king. All are valid experiences and you're meant to have them. So becoming liberated, you know, truly liberated is one of Lucifer's greatest gifts, but he does not give it to you. That is to say, if you think Lucifer is going to buy you a car, if you think Lucifer is going to grant wishes for you, if you think Lucifer is going to set you free, you're going to be sorely mistaken. Lucifer is a lot more, I don't know if you're familiar with the Conan mythos, you know, the Conan, the Conan universe. Conan, uh, in, in the Conan world, Krom is a lot more like Lucifer because Lucifer doesn't give you anything. You pray to Lucifer, you're going to be praying to your inner, your, your inner thoughts and go, why don't you do this for me? You know, do it yourself. Why do you want me to, how, how, how can you be free if you're not freeing yourself first? In other words, you know, I can, I can, um, if you're not free in your mind, what good is my clipping the chains off of you? If you're still a slave in your mind, if you're still willing to do the work anyway, 
you know do you need to be enchained even like that right there to me um that right there is the price of admission um i think a lot of people kind of jump on the magical path as a quick fix you know give me the spell yes. give me the deity to solve my problems none of that's true none of that's here it's if you're doing something amazing and maybe because you changed your state so dramatically that you've forgotten your drama for a little bit and that change in behavior is giving you results but um, it's a path that for you to become God, quote unquote, because it is the path of becoming a God. Um, it means absolute and complete total responsibility, accountability, my ability to do something about it. I can maybe through the process of magic, gain different insights or alterations of consciousness that allows me different vantage points and perspectives and shifts in vibration. But it's ultimately my responsibility to align myself with action, uh, to come into that place in that space. Um, I love what you're raising. Um, there's that quote from Joseph Campbell that, you know, every religion is true in that the symbolism is true. And if we look at the, we try to almost investigate the symbolism behind it and the meaning and why do these archetypes persist? Why do we see the repeating patterns of consciousness or experience of mythology reoccurring in these different stages? And we see it's this kind of development. To me, even the the development of the sexual energy of kundalini is that development of our sexual identity from an adolescent stage into a more matured stage as we raise through those those tiers of development which has an interesting correlation to ken wilber's idea of the integral model and i i like this notion that you're referring to that it's that's almost not religious you know because that religious theory he ascribes to kind of like the third center that um, it's still a stage of development. It, it, it's that recognition of the artistic dimension of the mind, but it's, it's, it's a vantage point. It's one of those states. It's not the full picture um, kind of a thing. Uh, that leads me to, you know, another one of my questions. How have you found or what is your strategy in utilizing magic and utilizing your practice as a way to escape because there are existing frames, there are those existing narratives, those stories that make up the individual and keeps us trapped. As you said, there's no, the D.H. Thorne, uh, Adam Knox, they're characters that are the effect of these narratives, you know, to a degree. How do you deeply dive into the core of those narratives and shift it? Is it purely a research thing and a self-actualization thing? Have you found an, a strategy and magic that helps you with that? So one of the misconceptions, people who know me know that I didn't, so I practiced magic as a teenager and uh, I had a wild experience with that and I had to break free of that for various reasons. But what actually led to all of this was I studied the, I had these higher intellectual metaphysical concepts that I was working with in my mind, trying to understand. And through doing that, I discovered people like Alan Watts, Terrence McKenna, Carlos Castaneda, people like that. But in particular, Alan Watts, by listening to him, uh, I feel like I'm like his, his, his Padawan, like he was my digital force ghost, you know, Jedi master. And I, I listened to him. And when I was listening to him, I go, yeah, I've always thought that, but you just said it in a different way. And he helped, he kind of gave me permission to realize I, I had a lot of it put together already. Mm. And he just kind of like, you know, the, the, the things from what he was saying, let me accept that I understood. And uh. then the epiphany happens, the enlightenment happens, and then bang. So then magic returned to my life because of that, because I was a hard skeptic at one point, because I'd put magic away. I, I realized, you know, hey, maybe I'm kind of getting schizophrenic. Maybe I'm having emotional problems and I'm using 
this as, as the wrong thing. Maybe I'm deluding myself when I think that, you know, because there was, I had a lot of power. I had a lot of manipulative power. I'm obviously charismatic to a certain degree. I, I had a lot of power over people and I could do a lot of things with that power, even cause weird things to happen. So I thought, but yet I would fail at other things. Why can't I get money? Why can't I do this? I wasn't dealing with my shadows. I wasn't properly integrating my own human nature, right? I still thought the world was something external. And so I failed at big things that I really wanted to do. And that, of course, nothing like failure can breed more failure in magic, doubt in magic. And eventually I just said, this isn't real. And I put it down. So having that non-dual awakening, you know, I hesitate to say enlightenment because there's no one to be enlightened. If I say I'm enlightened, that's my ego talking. Mm. The enlightenment experience happens and it's not permanent. It's, it's a, whoa, it's like a threshold moment. And we either cross it all the way or we step back. Well, I stepped back a little bit and I said, okay, if that is true, which it is, if, if that experience was valid, that means that the idea that magic can't be real, that's silly. Because obviously I am manifesting everything that I see right now. Everything I'm experiencing is a manifestation taking place. It's a dream taking place, not in my brain, but I think it is. Even my brain is a dream manifestation itself. I am experiencing what my brain is manifesting, if you will. So when I realized that, I said, there's nothing stopping you from going back into magical practices and really exploring them as an adult with, with this non-dual center rather than that superstitious religious dogma perspective mm. of there's a God and it's there's magic and I go bibbidi-bobbidi-boo and stuff happens. So I allowed myself to explore it as an art form first. Like I said, okay, I'm going to test and see if this is real. I'm going to explore it as an art form of expression. I'm going to see what this does for me. And wow, the things that, that happened blew me away to the point where I was like, well, I got to do this full time. This has to be my life again. It was a missing component of my life that I had to restore. Now, this idea that magic does anything is one of, you know, one of the biggest secrets in the truth is so if you if to put it uh, I'm kind of getting tongue-tied on trying to put it in a in a framing but in the the eastern traditions of of the vedas the the siddhi which are the nine powers right you have telekinesis telepathy and all this stuff they're they're actually traps okay as you start achieving your ascension in that system you are tested with powers okay powers may come to you and they do exist, but they are not the point. The, the powers are illusory traps because each one of them only serves to reinforce the delusion of that I am an ego. Mm. You start to think D.H. Thorne did it. No, D.H. Thorne didn't do it. D.H. Thorne is the thing being done. D.H. Thorne is an experience I'm having. It's not doing it. D.H. Thorne does not, D.H. Thorne didn't change his stars by magic, okay? Magic precludes D.H. Thorne. Magic, is, so the word Maya in these Eastern traditions means among other things, magic, delusion, illusion, dream, uh, mystery, all of those, a lot of cool words in the word Maya. And magic is one of them. Now, what I learned to recognize, and I learned it, I started to get it early on in my, my re-emergence in practice of magic, because I'm testing everything as I'm going. I I do a ritual to write a book. I do this, I do that. My life is changing dramatically. I suddenly lose 70 pounds because I'm working with, with President Marbos. And I recognize that I can't prove that my magic caused any of that. 
And then I start to think, well, what caused me to do the magic? Why did I do the magic? Why did I do the rituals? What is the magic that I'm doing? What the f is that? Is, my, is this magic? Do you think that this isn't magic? This is, this is a candle and some crap that's on a, on a stool that looks pretty. That's not magic. Is that magic? No, that's not magic. These are all art. That's all artistry. What is the magic? Someone a little smarter is going to say, oh, it's, it's something you're doing in your subconscious. That's the magic. So magic subconscious. Okay. What caused me to do all that? Where did that come from? What is the prime? What is the initiator of the magic? What caused it? The magic is the initiator. In other words, like I said earlier, if you can't tell the difference between predicting the outcome and causing the outcome, you're getting closer to the truth. When, when you start to recognize that you did a magic ritual because you are meant to have this epiphany of, wait a minute, reality is more than a material construct. Reality is more than this firm, hard thing that I'm stuck in. Mm. I am not a victim. I have a certain kind of place in it. So my final answer that I came to was that magic as I practice it anyway, and what most people are seeking to do is actually a form of yoga that doesn't just involve your body or poses or breathing. It, it involves aligning an altar and saying certain words. The, 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 the mantras become the invocations. The mudras become what you do with your hands over your altar. The altar becomes part of the mudra. It's all yoga. Now, yo yoga means union. Union meaning alignment. This alignment is the mind, body, and spirit coming into alignment with a singular understanding of what you are and the flow of reality that you are. So when I am doing magic properly, I do not enter magic from a position of begging or commanding. It is a cooperative effort where I am respecting the fact that D.H. Thorne, the ego, thinks he's an individualistic thing that is himself and, and, and is firm and solid. D.H. Thorne has to say, I'm doing this already as part of a bigger picture. I am acting as a conduit through which magic is flowing. I am working as an avatar for a higher self. So when I go into a ritual, I practice mindfulness, which is actually very little thinking going on. There's not a lot of active thinking. The thoughts are minimal, whatever is required to do a thing, and then nothing more, usually zero. I'm, I'm pretty capable of, of blanking my mind, if you will. If someone were to read my brain, a lot of time it would be just nothing. Okay, I simply act and I don't predict, I don't analyze, I just do. So in a ritual, I will set things up so that I'm, a, I'm able to just follow an intuitive course of what needs to be done based, of course, on my knowledge of symbolism and what I like and what has worked in the past and so on. And I compound all of that into a thing. And I contact a spirit most of the time because I like practicing theurgy, which is uh, a form of, of spiritual magic in which you recognize within your own archetypal self, your own D.H. Thorne, Adam, not self, pieces of those other archetypes. So if I contact Marbos, I recognize President Marbos has, he is, he's very intelligent. He's, he's an engineer. He's, 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 he's um, uh, excuse me, uh, uh, medical. He's got medical knowledge and all that. And I have an 140 IQ. So I'm into everything. I study those things. I study med medicine. I study that stuff. It's all interesting to me. And I recognize 
somewhere in there is the archetype of the curious tinker, right? The curious uh, physician, the, 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 so that guy I recognize as a part of me and somehow I find within myself this unity that I am Marbas and Marbas is me. And when I say that, some people will say, oh, so you're, you're saying he's not real or that he's just in your mind. No, 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 no. The, the, the head trip that we're all in is thinking that there's something outside of us. We, we get into this mistaken thought that, um, that anything exists beyond what we imagine. So to put another way, Adam Knox exists in my imagination. And the Adam Knox that I see and I experience right now exists nowhere else in the universe except in my mind. In other words, I'm having the experience of Adam Knox and you're having the experience of Adam Knox as you understand him. And somewhere in the middle is this, this, this layer of mutual creation objective truth. The objective truth is not the truth. It's, 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 it's where the two polarities come together and, and agree upon something. So Marbos is this archetypal entity projecting through whatever symbolism I like. He might also be Hermes. Uh, he might also be Mercury. He might also be, you know, any, any number of spirits associated with that planetary archetype. He might be, okay. And uh, uh, Chiron, for example, you know, he, he might even be that. He might be all these different things that, that represent those same things but it's manifesting through this archetype of a demonic lion because I'm an edgy guy and I like that stuff. I like that look. I like the, the I'm not, a, I'm not a, a love and light type of person where everything has to be about healing and protection. No, 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 no. He can also cause disease. He can also cause illness. He can also cause destruction. So I like that and I, I study that. So yeah, I hope I'm not getting too lost in the weeds trying to explain. No, no, no. It's just, it's just, uh, there's like, there's so many like juicy bits. And I love, I love the way you're framing things because it's the way I also, I view things in the exact same way. And I, I find this really resonant, but there were, there were two things that I kind of like want to tap on just before we kind of move on. There is firstly, what I'm getting directly from you is almost like there's this magnificent sense of surrender um, to your magic, to your surrender, to your archetype, to your higher self, so to speak, to allow it to flow. So the one question I want to ask is what, what allows that? Firstly, is that a permanent state or is that a state that you're able to access when entering into your magic practice? So that's the one part of the question. The second part of the question um, when we speak about this relationship with deity or with entity or archetype or consciousness or whatever we want to refer to as in the language, in one degree, it's a type of, you know, the animistic kind of view of where we give a representation of this dimension of nature, of our own nature, of our fundamental self, which in and of itself is a construct that's always evolving and always ever-changing based upon whatever paradigms we give it. If, In fact, if we want to allow others to be gods and ourselves to be gods, we need to allow everyone to create whatever potential realities they want to exist in. Is there, through this, that's, that's the question about the surrender, is it then a conscious choice? Are we co-navigating it? Are we so, surrendering? So the, in Taoism, there's the concept of Wu Wei. And there's, and there's also the concept of purposelessness. If you are the source, which you are, if we are the source, the idea that we have a choice to go against the source is absurd. You're already acting 
exactly as you are meant to act. This, this question of free will is really what you're getting at. Uh, do I have, when you say surrender, I say, what am I surrendering to? What is there outside myself that I could possibly surrender to? If I am everything that there is, if you are everything that there is, if we are all God, if God is all of us, what could I possibly surrender to? So what's actually happening? It's not a surrendering. It's an acknowledgement that the ego has no choice in either. The ego thinks it has choices. The ego thinks that it chooses actions. The ego thinks that it does things. The, the nature of the ego is a jester sitting upon the throne of what we truly are saying, I'm the king, look at me doing it all. And of course, the jester is actually the king in disguise. It's, it's a great game we play with ourselves. We, we, we sit upon the throne thinking we have all of this control. And when somebody says, Thorne, do we have free will? I say, what in the world could the only thing in the universe have to be free of? In other words, if you are the universe, okay, Man, because we have, to, you, we, have, we have to phrase things in materialistic terms for people to understand because language is a materialistic, dualistic concept. Mm. So if I say universe, I mean really emptiness. If I'm talking about you, I'm talking about that. When I say I, I'm trying to linguistically emphasize that I know D.H. Thorne thinks he's one thing because that's what he does. But I know D.H. Thorne's a character I'm playing. I know that D.H. Thorne is not what I am. The, the, that higher truth knows this and it loves every moment of that limitation. So what does our will what, what if we are the universe, what in the world is there for the universe to be free from? How can that will be free? So my statement is you are causality. You, you're not a victim of causality. You're not at the mercy of causality. You cannot, you cannot um, free yourself from causality. You can't go against the flow. You are the flow. You're the whole thing. You're, you, there, there is no inside without an outside. They're, they go together. You're, you're the same thing. There is no will for you to be free from. Just like I would say, um, you know, if, if there is a God and it's the only God, then I am that God, if that God is everything. And if there's only one God, there must be no gods because if there's only one thing objectively, then there's no two. And if there's no two, there's no distinction between one and zero. One and zero are the same. In other words, one is only one when you can have a one and another one. As soon as you have only one, it's the same in my mind as a zero. So what I'm saying is, is this whole idea of surrendering to something is absurd. What is actually happening is I've just arrived in a point in my story where this higher self wanted the ego delusion to go, I'm the universe. And that's what it's doing. So when I say I'm the universe, that's still BS. That's still bullshit. That's still my ego playing the game that it thinks makes it sound wise and cool and it has no choice in the matter it's 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 um it's difficult until people achieve it sounds like a bunch of contradictions but i'm telling you that paradox is the key that opens up an understanding of the truth you have to understand it's almost like in the matrix when neo goes to the oracle and she says you've already decided you're just now living it so that you can understand why mm -hmm. okay um, it's, it, there's truth in that. The matrix is excellent for a lot of these things. The matrix, whoever, you know, the guys, when they came up with it, they definitely did a deep dive into non-dual metaphysics and they really asked some difficult questions and they're great questions. And they answered them quite well with metaphor. Now, so when you're saying, you know, surrendering, so what is surrendering? Um, really what's going on 
is think of it this way. When you are reading a book, and I, I use this analogy a lot, people who are fans of mine know I, I bring this up all the time. When you take a book, I mean, I could take, you know, hopefully I don't knock all this down because it's tight. If I take one of my books, right? And I'm holding one of my books, I'm having an experience of the entire book right now in my hand. Can I read it that way? No. How do I have to read it? I have to open it and do that. Well, I just saw every word in the book pretty much, right? I just, did it make any sense? No. So what did I have to do? Well, okay, I opened to a page, right? And there's a lot of words on the page. I'm looking at two pages at once. Do I know what they say? No. What do I have to do? I've got to zoom in and have a, a limited sense of perspective until I can get just enough that I can comprehend at one time. Then the mistake happens. The mistake happens when you think you are the printed page, when you think you are the words. Are there words on this page? No. They're little blobs of ink. What makes them words? Because they, they look like things that you've associated with words. What are words except ideas in a shape that you recognize to have a meaning? What is meaning except part of the delusion? Okay. So all of this is a layer upon layer upon layer of a delusion. So to align myself with that, when I'm reading a book, if I'm fully in myself, I don't need the book. I need a few concepts out of it and I can probably write the book myself. Not because I'm that brilliant or magical or anything like that, but because I'm already creating it. I know I'm creating it when I'm reading it. I know that the ideas are in the ether of reality and I'm simply accessing them through the medium of this book. The book is not the source of that higher knowledge. Now, of course, does that mean I can read the future? No. Does it mean I can read the past? Not necessarily, no. What it means is to know myself simply means to stop looking outside myself for that answer. So when I go into magic, what I do is I shift my awareness. My awareness shifts itself from the limited little old me to a little bit more than that. And it stops focusing on the left brain thoughts and it starts allowing itself to experience the moment as it is. So when I go into a ritual properly, like really, really do it right, there's not a lot of chatter in my head. I go into the ritual and my awareness, it's almost like being, um, I don't know if you're capable. I don't know. It's not everybody is. I don't know if you're capable of, of having a no mind experience. If you, if you can, you might know what I'm going to say. If not, then you won't know what I'm going to say. But if you're capable of, of walking around, acting and talking without thinking first, if you're able to experience time without a sense of conversation in your head or pictures in your head, if you're able to just act, you know what I'm talking about. Now, actually, everybody is, okay? Whenever you drive a car, you're practicing that because you, the act of driving a car becomes very subconscious. You don't have to think it through to do it. You just let driving happen. And you'll be surprised that we've all driven somewhere and said, how did I get here? I don't remember doing any of that. I don't remember planning any of that. I just got here. When I'm doing ritual properly, that's kind of what's happening. It's like I'm driving a car and, and not paying attention to any of the, the, the blah, blah, blah in my head. So just Even question, now I'm- Just a question sure. on that, um, because that, that there's, there's, a, there's a question very much about the two differences of that state, because there's the unconsciousness where I'm just mm -hmm. I'm completely running, being run by a process versus a flow state where I'm almost accessing just divine. Is it somewhere in the mm -hmm. middle of that? Is it one or the yeah. other? 
Well, so there's the left brain and the right brain. The right brain is your subconscious brain, which is mostly feelings and intuitiveness and things that are, that are subtext. In fact, when science studies the brain and when we make decisions, we've already decided something long before we become consciously aware of it. In other words, if even the words I'm saying, uh, my left brain can analyze and, and, and veto them like a muzzle, like a muffler, like a, you know, it gets to, it gets to kind of be that, that, that spotlight that says, look out for the rocks. But the rudder is what's steering you. And that rudder is in the subconscious mind. It's the part of the mind that has already decided long before your mouth happens. So what I'm saying is, is that the flow state would be when the left and right hemispheres of your brain work without interruption. The Western mind is very analytical because we've been taught and trained from a young age that the left brain is the smart one that the one that analyzes everything and thinks things through, that's the one you should listen to, not your impulses. Your impulses are still what does everything. Your impulses are still the, the, what comes first. So uh, another way to think of it would be like consciousness, um, if, if, and this is not correct, but, but my theory would be, if I'm gonna put it in a materialistic way of looking at it, your brain is like a complex computer slash antenna system. It tunes into the consciousness Okay, and consciousness tunes into it. And the doorway it goes through is through the subconscious. So it, this consciousness goes through the subconscious. And then this analytical left brain has this kind of, this, this kind of um, you know, uh, veto power to, to kind of analyze and, and, and kind of be like, I have this sudden urge to put my hand in a fire, but that's going to hurt. So I'm not going to do that. Right. So that's that's that part. Your 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 greater consciousness doesn't care if it hurts. It's it's like, hey, this is this is an experience. I like experience. I want to have it. So your brain, your left brain is very analytical and it chops up your experience into analytical bites and it processes them. And the Western mind says that's the real mind. The truth is the whole thing is a unified whole. You can't separate. So what I'm saying is where do those actions come from? Here's the another layer that, that, again, people, when they hear this, they, they, go, they go, what? You have to look a lot of this stuff up, unfortunately, because it, it's a lot to unpack. But the understanding is that the, the, in, in the Vedic tradition, they call it the Brahman, okay? And the Brahman is all that is, all that can be, all at once, existing simultaneously in one oomph of time. There is no time. There is Brahman. Brahman is all three dimensions of space and one of time, all the time, in one thing. You know, Einstein would tell us that time is an illusion because it's relative to the observer. The idea that time flows is illusory. Um, there is only the perspective in a geometric sense, hmm. in a perspective sense. Einstein was this close in some ways to understanding what the Vedics understood for, you know, what the Rishis taught and all this for a long time. Time is an illusion. If time is an illusion, that means one in front of the other is an illusion. That is causality. Linearity is an illusion. That means I'm not doing anything. That means when I'm practicing a ritual, what is actually happening is really no different from my eyes scanning across a page and thinking that things are changing. When you read a book, for example, this is why I like books. I don't read that much anymore. This is why I like books as an analogy. When you read a book, <clears throat> don't you after a while stop seeing words and start seeing the story? Doesn't the story manifest in your awareness and the words are like tuned out, like you tune them out, you know you're reading, like you know there's a book in your hand, 
but you start to see the character in the story and you start to see the events. Your imagination fills in all the gaps and you suddenly might even see, a, some people see a very vivid head movie of what's going on. They don't even see the book anymore. Well, all of those events are in a solid state in the book. They, they, they are in a solid place. Bang, that's the whole story right there. You're experiencing it sequentially because if you didn't, you'd be seeing the whole book at once. So you are, when, when you are doing anything, you're having the illusion of doing it because it's already in existence. It's already happened. It's already in one solid state. They call it the solid state universe or the block time universe in, in, in scientific terms. It's the idea that all past, present, and future have already happened and that whatever is going on is actually consciousness moving. Something is moving through the block of reality and thus experiencing it frame by frame like watching a movie. So it actually also answers the whole, you know, uh, uh, Schrodinger's cat problem because <laughs> it basically says that there's an infinite number of, of possible states for the cat alive, dead, maybe it exploded, maybe, oh, okay, bird, we get it. <laughs> All these things have, have already happened. Um, and so what causes us to see a living cat or a dead cat? Does it create a whole new universe? Well, that's silly. It would take an infinite amount of energy to create another universe just to create an alternative story. So there's either only one thing or all things are true. So what makes us see the one thing? What causes us to see that one story? Another metaphor to think of it would be this. If you're riding in a train, and if you've been riding in that train long enough, you might forget that you're on a train. When you look out the window, you see the world going by. Would you assume that the train is moving if you'd forgot you're even on a train or would you assume the world is moving? Your experience of time is no different from this. You think that the world is moving around you and that you're moving in the world and all of this is moving. What if the only thing that's moving is your consciousness and all of this is a static instant and your consciousness being forever and eternal just simply moves through this as a focus of its attention causing the illusion of time, space, moment to moment, causality, left, right, up, down, now, later. I chopped my hand off. I didn't chop my hand off. All of these things are illusions. That means so much potential is there for your true nature to experience whatever reality it wants. If I really want to live in a universe where I know magic, all I have to do, they call it quantum jumping, is literally jump a timeline to the one where I ex experience magic being real. It's really that simple. But doing that is not up to your ego. This is where that whole contest of, of I'm doing magic to bend the world to my will. Good luck. You're going to be doing it a long time and suffering a lot of suffering because you think that that's what you're supposed to do. It's, for, it's me, magic is just, for me, magic is just another kind of meditation. I find I like the idea of, um, to me, spiritual purity wasn't an abstinence of alcohol or sex or anything like that. Uh, true spiritual purity or magical or occult purity, as I call it, is when you can perceive an alternative reality and identify completely at a fundamental level with it without contradiction. You, know, you can't live in a world where magic is a probability or these rules exist and then you have those contradictions. But then again, you can't also just repress those contradictions. You can't just pretend it doesn't exist. You have to resolve them. Um, and only when they're resolved 
do they achieve the actuality? Um, so we're, we're kind of running at the end coming closer to the end of our time. And I think for anybody listening, this is such a great conversation. If you're keen on getting some more, uh, there is the live stream on, on Thursdays, uh, which is American time. It's early Friday morning, South African time uh, that people can still follow up with this. And this is a weekly thing, isn't it? Yeah, we do it weekly. And of course I'm playing the very reserved uh, Libra style thorn. And on, and on Thursdays, I'm more, I'm more in tune with my audience, which is, a bit more lively and a bit more aggressive and a little bit more crazy. It's also early to me because like I, I usually sleep till about noon. So uh, so uh, by then I'll be feeling my oats a little bit more and I'll be a lot less reserved. So if people don't like a person who's a little, little over talkative, I, I already talked the most during this, obviously, but I'll probably end up doing that again to you when you come on my show because we do have a plan on having you on Thursday. We, we have a, good, a lot of good fun. My last one, we spent the first half hour sort of making fun of uh, evangelical Christians, which was kind of, uh, you know, maybe, you know, it's a little, it's a little much because I don't hate anybody. I don't, I don't have the propensity to go, oh, you're a Christian, you suck. But I do find certain things funny. And so it was April Fool's Day, which we celebrate here in the States. Uh, some of us do, and we make a lot of jokes and gags out of it. So that's what we did. But you can get a good taste of what we're like by watching that one. And after all the fun and games, I go into my, my famous rants where I talk for like an hour about the same subject and, and get very pedantic. So um, hopefully you guys enjoyed me here, but uh, I'm, I, may, I may be a little rude, not, not on purpose, my friend. I think you're a swell guy, so it's nothing like that. But I have, I have an overactive throat chakra. I tend, to, I tend to speak my truth a little too much. So uh, hopefully, hopefully that doesn't bother you. But, no, no, uh, I think it gives us some great conversation. In fact, usually I'm the one that has to lead a lot of things. So this is a, a nice kind of pleasant <laughs> change of pace. So um, my only thing is like, uh, I'm keen to pop on and um, it's, it's, it's early morning here for us. So during those rants, I'm going to have a great time just being able to make some coffee and enjoy the good conversation because <laughs> this has been, this has been a really good conversation. There's one question I want to kind of close us off with today. And again, everybody, if you're keen, you want to hear more, join in on Thursday. I'll make sure all the links are in the videos as well as all on the media, um, as well as to DH Lawrence's work. Uh, you've got some incredible pieces out there. And I really love that you have a very, you have a very clearly intelligent approach to your work. And it's not, again, like it's not seeped in superstition. There's a lot of authors out there today that are just making these, you know, their bestseller books sometimes if I read them and they kind of, they're great, but they they create more of a disconnect than something that's practical. And that's something that I, I respect sure. about your work. It's rational and it's practical, which is something that I appreciate. Mm -hmm. um, but the question I wanna, I wanna close with, you spoke about that kind of combination with those two states, that kind of deep mind state, that very unconscious factors that are kind of running the game sometimes that we wanna get into that flow balance. Is it more effective? Is somebody going to be more effective in developing these cognitive relationships with these spiritual archetypes or levels of consciousness or entities if they're less controlled by those forces and more aware of and able to influence those forces? So um, my open secret, if I had one, and I, and I, and you know, I'm irreverent about everything. If I say something, you know, understand it comes from a sort of, I, I exist in a spectrum where people are theistic and superstitious and they take these things overly seriously. So I can be irreverent and I'll say, everything I do is bullshit, but not the way you probably might think. When I say everything I'm doing is bullshit, it's, 
the point is not that I'm, uh, yeah, I'm making it up actually as I go along, but I'm not making it up from an insincere place. I'm not coming from a position of saying that there is no point to this and I'm doing this to make money off of you. What I'm telling you is everything that you do in your life is a form of bullshit. You're making it up as you go along. You are imagining it right now. Everything that you are hearing me say, you're hearing in your own imagination, okay? That's not to say that I am not saying them. It is simply to say your experience of it is happening in a way that only you can have and only you can put the meaning on it. Only you can put the shape to it. Only you can decide whether I sound wise or stupid. So you are ultimately shaping your reality every moment. So my open secret in communing with spirits is not trying to, first I've rationalized that they are archetypal ideas that exist within the collective consciousness of humanity and they are based on cosmic archetypes, which themselves are even bigger than something a human would potentially understand. So they are alive, but they are also, what does it mean to even be alive is, is a bigger question, okay? And, and I go into that sometimes. There's actually a big conversation we can have about that some other time. It's the, it's, it's the question of, are you more real than Superman and how can you tell? And I would say <laughs> by, by, by many standards of logic, Superman's actually more real than you are. But anyway, we'll, 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 that could be another conversation. Um, That's so, a good perspective though. <laughs> I'm looking so, forward to Thursday's chat. <laughs> well, I talk about it a lot. I might not be able to talk because I talked about the last three Thursdays. So who knows? I might not be okay. able to talk about it. Can we make but it but what I'm getting at, what I'm getting at is my open secret is that when people ask me, Thorne, how do I do it? And they'll say, what, what incense do I need? What candles do I need? What prayers should I use? Blah, 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 blah. And I say, none of that. None of that is going to make it better. None of, there's no book that's going to teach you to connect to a spirit better. What you need to recognize is that these exist as figments of your imagination, but that doesn't mean they're invalid. It simply means when someone says it's just in your imagination, I want to slap them because the word just doesn't belong in front of the word imagination. Mm. Everything was your imagination before it manifested as something that you would think of as real. The, the pyramids, the great pyramids in Egypt were somebody's imagination before they became something solid. Mm -hmm. So this idea that it's just in your imagination is, is just throw that out. It is in your imagination. Embrace that. And by embracing that, recognize that gives you power over it. You can, right now, if you understand what the astral is, if you, if you imagine yourself to be flying, you're flying. It's that simple. There is no trick to it. There is no secret to it. It is literally envision yourself flying over your town. There you go. You're flying over your town as far as your consciousness is really truly aware. Read Carlos Castaneda. He illustrates it very well when he gets to this one part in the book. I, I won't tell you for now where it is. So my open secret is to role play. You have to, you have to um, allow yourself to engage with the fantasy until in such a vivid way that you can't tell whether you're just imagining it or it's happening. So when I do a ritual, when I'm communing with a spirit, I go through this whole process. If I'm doing it right, you know, I don't always get it perfect. Sometimes I'm kind of like, it's only a little bit and sometimes it's really well. When it goes really well, what I do is I will, as vividly as possible, imagine the spirit entering my ritual chamber or I will envision my ritual chamber in an astral space. So this will become an altar, a nice one. This will become a torch instead of a candle. It'll, it'll all get much more interesting to me. Absolutely. And, in will, and, and, and then Lucifer will appear or stride in, or I'll walk up to him in his dark spot in, in you know, the infernal realms with 
you know, sitting on his thing with it, looking all dejected. I'll encounter him and I will start talking to him and I will role play both sides of the conversation until I get lost in it. And I can no longer tell whether I'm deciding what he's saying or it's just happening. Hmm. At some point, the, the distinction between it's all me or it's someone else leaves. This actually happens to me in, in day-to-day conversations. It's one of the reasons I talk so much is because a lot of the times I feel like I already know what you're going to say and I can kind of guide you to say what I want you to say so I can just talk about what I want. So it's, it's like an NLP trick, okay? So this is, this is the thing. You're talking to yourself all the time. If you understand the non-dual perspective, you're always talking to yourself. Right now when I'm talking to you, I'm talking to myself. Even if just for the, the simple fact that you're not really here, I'm looking at a bunch of particle, uh, pixels on my computer screen and I hear some sound in my ear that you're generating over where you are in South Africa, but you're not here. What am I talking to? I'm talking to an inanimate object and we're having a communication because of it. I'm talking to myself, okay, realistically. When I'm talking to Lucifer, I'm talking to myself, but that is not to imply to those of you who are hell-bent on this theistic perspective that Lucifer must be a fallen angel. Lucifer can be that fallen angel for you if that's what you really want them to be. I'm not telling you to stop doing that. I'm telling you in the process of doing that, look for the truth that I'm telling you. Understand that you are creating this and the secret to really powerful channeling and really powerful spirit communication is not trying to find the spirit outside yourself, but to find it within yourself and then evoke or invoke it so that you can properly connect to it. You know, Mm -hmm. evocation being the externalization of the spirit, invocation being the internalization. So when I'm doing an evocation, I use a lot of incense and things that'll give me signals. And I ask for signs in my environment. And when I get them, I go, here he is, he's here or whatever spirit it might be. When I'm invoking them, I do things that make me feel like them and, and have like a possession or channeling of them so that I'm truly like speaking with them, for them, as them, and they're coming through. And then someone will say, you know, the superstitious will say things like, so that should give you the ability to know what the spirit knows to a point. You have to understand what a spirit knows still has to go through the filter of your own consciousness, your, your own personal consciousness. So if I don't know your real life name, it's going to be tough. I might get it. You know, I'm not saying it's impossible. Strange stuff happens. Okay. Miracles do happen. I'm not ever going to tell you they don't. I'm just telling you that the nature of miracles is a lot more natural than people realize. They're a lot more simple and and rational than people realize. Yeah. The amount of variables is just difficult to calculate by any situation. And, and also uh, if I can't, maybe it's just because my awareness is too centralized only here. Mm. Right. Um, One way to think of it um, is maybe I'll end on this. Um, your, your awareness of your current moment where you are right now requires that you not be aware of where you were 10 minutes ago. What you're aware of 10 minutes ago exists only as a memory. You can experience that memory very vividly, but you cannot actually live it anymore. It's, 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 it has to be forgotten. It has to be put away. Okay. So why don't I know what Adam Knox is thinking exactly right now? Because I had to forget that I'm you to be me. In other words, I had to, I had to put you away just like I had to put 10 minutes ago away. So, so in order for me to get you, 
right? I've got to make a connection to you somewhere. I read people very well, but it doesn't mean I can, doesn't mean I know your life story. It doesn't mean that I can like read your thoughts. It doesn't mean, it just means that maybe empathically, maybe because I have a compassion within myself, I'm able to connect with living things and get them pretty, pretty, pretty vividly. And um, everyone can do that. It's not just me. So this can lead to some weird supernatural things and, and it's not really supernatural. That's the game. So I probably said a lot of gobbledygook because I had to unpack a lot of stuff and I couldn't do it quite the way I like, but um, yeah. So hopefully some of this gave you and your audience some things to think about. And I do have every week I put out a regular video and a Thursday night stream. So my regular video is more structured. It's more like our conversation. I'm a little bit more in character, so to speak. And Thursdays, we kind of just let it all hang out and we kind of go crazy and have fun. So, uh, yeah. That's exciting. DH, thank you. This has been an absolute honor. It's been a great conversation. There's actually about 500 more questions I've now got for you after this. <laughs> but unfortunately, our time is, time is spent. Um, but let's see if we can get some more of that on Thursday. Otherwise, would you be up for maybe joining us in the conversation again in the future? Yo, for sure. Absolutely. You're a very courteous host and I enjoyed it very much. And, um, you know, we'll definitely look to that. I mean, my time gets limited, but I'm always, you can always ask. And, uh, you know, I will always, so I'm a little introverted. I'm an introverted extrovert. I'm, I'm very charismatic and charming, but if you ever go to a, a, a goth nightclub with me, I'm sitting in the corner and wonder, I ha, I'm like playing court where I have like people I'm talking to and I might have people come up and I don't like, I'm not in the dance floor trying to be the center of attention. I'm just not. I, I like to, I like people to seek me out at the top of the mountain because then I'm like, I got time for you. You made the effort, but I also don't like spending a lot of time talking to random people. It's, it's weird. I, it's introverted extrovert is such a, it's such a weird way to be because I crave that interaction, but I like it on a, on an intimate level. And when I'm ready for it, not when everyone else is like, mm -hmm. if I come out saying, all right, it's time to be social, then it's fine. But otherwise, like I hate like I'll get, I was getting like 10, 20 messages from random people a day. And I'm like, I can't respond to anybody. I just can't. And, and, and I guess people got the message. I don't get 10, 20 messages a day anymore. <laughs> so um, well, never take it personally if I don't respond is what I'm saying. I will sometimes just go off into Thornland and just be like, no, nah, I'm not talking to people today. That, that's, fair, that's fair enough. And if they're really persistent, there's, there's Thursday nights, they can at least try and get something into the chat anyway. Always, always Thursday night. And you can always join our discord. I'm actually very prone to respond to discord questions, not private ones, the public ones I respond to. Okay. Um, you know, I think when people contact you in a DM, they have this perspective that they own your time when you're, you know, like the, one of the worst things I hate is when I pop open Facebook and I see a message, I don't click on it because it tells them that I saw it. And when they see that, they go, why didn't you respond? And it's like, have you seen my, my DM list? I can't respond to everybody. And people will be asking me these big, long, complicated questions. And even if I have an answer for them, sometimes the answer would require teaching them something that's going to take days of explanation. I don't want to do it. So mm -hmm. I don't always, you know, I don't want people to feel rude. When people DM you, they think they've got you in a private thing where they have, they own your time somehow. Like I, I took my time to write you a nice message, Thorne. Why can't you respond? Because if I did that to everybody, that's all I do all day. So I can't do it and I'm, I'm not interested. But if you do it on my Discord group, um, then it's a public setting. And people tend to be a little bit more polite in a public setting and expect less. And I'm not the only one answering the question potentially. So if I don't get to it, I let other people answer it. And then I can put in my two cents. So if people have questions or they need services from me, 
I'm very selective on who I give services to. My consults are easy to get, uh, get me to do, but my ritual services are like less than 5% of the people that contact me will I do because I just don't, I'm not doing it for the money, but mm -hmm. I do require the money because you got to be serious about it. Yes. And, you know, it's, it's, uh, I got to want to help you, especially if I'm doing a heavy ritual. If I'm doing a little candle spell, that's different. I'm usually much more willing to do those because I'm literally giving you like a blessing. I'm literally here spirits, you handle it for me. If you think you should get it, go for it. Here's, the, here's my energy for it. Bang. And that's it. If I'm doing a big ritual for you, if I'm summoning a spirit and conversing with them and really doing the nitty gritty, I really want to know I'm doing the right thing for my own. I'm not wasting my time. You know, I need to know that it's going to work. Mm. So, and I've seen yeah, also I'm like, I've, I, and, and I'll say this in closing, it's just, I've looked at a lot of your service and your offerings. You're, you're definitely not somebody that's charging a fortune. You're not like one of those crazy people that's just doing your Patreon courses, your, your online stuff. They're exceptionally well-priced. So mm -hmm. there's no excuse for somebody. If they're really looking for something, there's a starting point. It's an easy point of entry. You know, if they're looking, if they're serious for that growth, um, and they're all fine. They're all findable. I'm going to make sure that all these links are also at the bottom um, and, and uh, any way that we can help promote or anything. I want to again, thank you so much for being here. It's been an absolute pleasure and a gift having you. And I look forward to chatting to you on the live stream some more. Yeah, man. I'll see you on Thursday and, and, and come with a drink in your hand. Even if it's coffee, that'll be fine. We're going to have a good time. And uh, you know, hopefully we get a little irreverent and we have fun making fun of ourselves a little bit. So I've always felt a little different. A little uneasy between regular folk. A bit of a dreamer, a lost cause. A little non-ordinary, some would say. I think I've always just been this way. My mother said I was special. My father thought I should be feared. But I knew that witchcraft coursed through my veins the first time I tasted the lips of the goddess inside the rain. Yes, I'm a witch, it's true. And sure, we are the ones who believe in the beauty of nature believe in the things science absent of art cannot explain, who instead of religion would have romance, and sure you may think we have lost our way, when in the world of predictable things we have such unfamiliar things that we would like to say, but maybe in a world so cold and alone, a little unfamiliar is exactly what is needed to show us the way home. Hey family. It's Adam Knox here. Thanks for supporting this podcast and, you know, these ideas. I really appreciate free thinkers, you know, like yourselves that are willing to challenge conventional norms and think for themselves and take on new challenges and look at new ideas. And as such, I want to say that if you haven't yet, if you are looking at ways to improve your knowledge over the entire field and you're looking at a you know regular feed of ideas and concepts to keep improving yourself i'd like to invite you to sign up at the cult of you all my teachings and all my ideas are there for only 19 dollars a month and every month i bring you a completely new section of some of the most cutting ideas and i'm constantly adding to that so i'm constantly reviewing and adding more knowledge as i gain them and you'll see a lot of the interviews and a lot of things that i do extend on some of the subjects that i cover inside of those areas i do take quite a bit of effort to make sure that the filming is also quite good and to give you not just a demonstration of rituals but also talk you through the psychology behind them so that you're empowered to do them and i cover every subject under the sun from science to art to magic to all the different systems out there from 
the golden dawn to the western of the western traditions to the left hand path traditions we discuss technology and technomancy we discuss sex magic and seduction we discuss so much more from purely the mental aspects to how do you deal with the darkness when it comes up as well as how do you take those things into business and into your romantic life as well as what are the keys to make your magic work as well as to unlock different degrees of spirituality so if you haven't yet please consider signing up at the cult of you and you'll be able to send me a mail and message there and i'll be there to help you you personally through mail correspondence and chat you and guide you through the entire process and if you make it through the first year of the entire cycle and you graduate the second year of the program you're able to have direct sessions with myself and some of the members of my temple and i look forward to helping you whether you go that route or not please keep enjoying these podcasts please share them with people that you think they are they're going to find value in them like and subscribe to the show and please send me your messages to info at the cult of you i would love to hear what are things that are important to you what are th- ideas and concepts that this raised maybe this inspired you maybe this you know made sense to you maybe this opened up something i'd love to hear that please talk to me and please share with me write in the comments and give me your ideas and concepts if you're watching this on the youtube channel if you're not if you're only watching this on the youtube channel please hit on over to spotify and do subscribe and if you're listening to this on spotify go check us out on youtube but please share this share these ideas and these concepts and let's let's have a conversation i'd love to hear from you that's it for me i'm adam knox this is the cult of you and remember live deliciously.